It's No More Normal. I'm Khalil Ekelona. For more than a year now, this show has been keeping pace with changes large and small, noting them and documenting them. It's about looking closely and creating a record of this historic year in human history. It's also been an unusual time for journalists themselves. We're talking about the behind the scenes thinking and decision making that goes into telling stories. Today, you'll hear from Megan Kamarek. I work for KUNM and New Mexico PBS. Julia Goldberg, and I work for the Santa Fe Reporter. Austin Fisher, I'm a freelance journalist based in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Sean Griswold, I work for New Mexico in debt. Kevin McDonald, executive producer at New Mexico PBS. Ray DeMarco, I'm the executive producer for No More Normal. I'm also a reporter at KUNM. Uh, Khalil Ekelona, host of No More Normal and reporter for KUNM. One, two, three, clap on four. One, One two, two, three. three. <laughs> we were both counting. You count this time, Khalil. Okay. Okay, here we go. One, two, three. What was it like to report the news during one of the most consequential periods of modern history? There was so much fear and so much we didn't know. Just delivering as much information as possible. I call it stress reporting. I mean, that's mostly what I was doing. Everything I based my success in my career was unavailable and it was frustrating. What did it do to us as individuals tasked to discover and share the stories of great importance with you? For whatever reason, my pandemic reporting experience ended up with me in the story on accident. How did journalists have to pivot and adapt to a media environment flooded in a cyclone of misinformation and disinformation? When something is demonstrably false and a lie, we have to call that out. How are we going to look at our jobs, the industry, the collective consciousness of the country now that things have fundamentally changed? The good is it has forced a deeper and closer connection to the audiences we serve. You're going to see collaboration between nonprofit public radio, public service journalism groups. If we're going to reach those audiences that have given up on us, we also need a sort of journalism that is informed and accountable to the communities that we cover. Today, we have a discussion about those questions and more with fellow journalists from the land of enchantment. when we're talking about, you know, personally, the pandemic impacts on all of you all. Like, how are you all feeling about your jobs and the work of journalism now as compared to this time last year? Sean. Yeah, so I actually had a break from journalism, a nice year buffer, and started April 2020. And my role with New Mexico in depth was a little bit accelerated. I wasn't supposed to start working with them until the summer, but because of the pandemic, they brought me on a little bit earlier. I was actually working at a grocery store during that time. So I experienced the pandemic from the retail end where I was running a liquor department at a grocery store in Albuquerque and just seeing cases of wine just fly out the shelves every day for several weeks. And this was also the same time as the toilet paper apocalypse that we all saw, where we had to limit individuals on, you know, hey, you can only take three pieces of toilet paper, but buy as much liquor as you want. It was kind of interesting dynamic in the supply chain with all that. So, you know, several weeks into the pandemic, about a month and a half into the pandemic, I started my job as a journalist and went from an essential worker out driving on the roads where there was nobody at the time. Everybody was at home. It was strange to be like driving 100 on I-25 
and going to work every day and seeing the signs that are like, stay home. But I'm like, no, I got to go to work. So I transitioned from that into reporting. And a lot of it was working from home, unfortunately, where I had to like immediately learn a new skill set and how to communicate with people. The strength that I carry as a journalist, I find is in reporting and being in the field and connecting with people and talking with communities and just kind of being there. I always like to say sometimes I'm a fly on the wall in a lot of situations and suddenly that wasn't available for me. Like everything I based my success in my career was unavailable and it was frustrating. It was difficult and ultimately it really slowed me down a lot. And I still feel like there's part of me that's still trying to catch up to the dynamics of how to report in a pandemic. So it was kind of an interesting opportunity for me to be able to jump back into journalism in the middle of a pandemic, have to relearn some of the skills the job requires while also having to adapt with what the current climate was giving for me. Hmm. Interesting. Austin. When I look at the beginning of the pandemic and compared to now, it's been a real big change. At the beginning of the pandemic, I was the news editor at the Rio Grande Sun. And, you know, I had been there for a few years. We had to totally change the entire structure of our operation within a matter of, you know, a week or two. I had to reconfigure everything to be distributed. We had four reporters who were filing stories out of Española, out of Santa Fe, and out of Twin Lakes, which is part of the Navajo Nation. And we were taking content from sources, phone interviews, Zoom interviews, even we had to start asking sources like, can you take photographs of this for us? Because we can't be there. I'm sure that the rest of the panel could talk about that, that part about how sources became super, super important, even more so than they were. And we had sources from across the state giving us content remotely. And we can circle back around to sort of the mental health part of that. But that was also a huge part of the remote part of it was trying to keep connections with my staff and make sure that they were okay and make sure that they were taking care of themselves and not getting into the sort of negative tendencies of being too caught up in the 24-7 pandemic news cycle. So I resigned from the sun in the late summer of 2020 in August. And since then, I've been freelancing on my own. That's been a very sort of isolating experience. I found that I worked on a single story for almost half a year, and it was almost entirely over the phone, with the exception of a single in-person interview that I really had to prepare for and be careful about because this was pre-vaccination. Yeah, so it totally upended our sense of how are we gathering news. Hmm. Kevin? It's been such a mixed bag. I think in many ways, the good is I feel like it has forced a deeper and closer connection to the audiences we serve for all the good and the bad that goes <laughs> with that. But it's expanded our world. And, you know, the superficial side of TV is we have to get people in front of a camera in order to make TV. And the fact that all of us have gotten used to hearing people over Zoom, seeing people over Zoom, being forgiving of dirty backgrounds or pets walking through in the background has allowed us to get to more areas in the state because we don't have to try to coordinate when somebody can come in studio, when that's going to work. So that part has been very rewarding, I think. While we have lots of challenges, we also saw opportunities because we serve the entire state or seen it across the entire state. I think back to folks calling us at the very beginning when we saw, especially the Navajo Nation and other tribal communities that were hit so hard. And we were able to put together and produce an hour-long town hall 
with information and stories and things. It also allows you to be more flexible that way and really respond to something. At the same time, I think the biggest challenge that we probably have all felt at some point in time is that there is a fire hose in our face and we are just chugging water like you can't believe from COVID to legislative sessions that are unprecedented because they're closed to the public, to Black Lives Matter protests, to civil rights violations, hate crimes, responding to that policy change. I mean, it's just under normal circumstances, we always feel like we have this limited time every week to talk about important issues in New Mexico. And this year, there's so many times where you just feel like can't keep up. making a lot of overarching content decisions for New Mexico PBS. Beyond logistically, did the pandemic change the kinds of stories that you wanted to tell or how you were framing them? Did it change the way you were thinking about all of the stories that you were trying to tell? To me, I think the biggest answer I would have to that is it just showed how interconnected all the stories that we have been telling, continue to tell really are. I mean, we sort of know that in our gut, but it just laid that so bare. I mean, I think we sort of joke in our newsroom oftentimes that in New Mexico, we're talking about the same issues year after year after year, whether it's you know our low education rankings to our, our reliance on oil and gas, how that affects the state budget, mental health issues, especially for the last more than half a decade with the dismantling of behavioral health. These are issues that we're perpetually talking about and trying to find new angles. But man, it just became so apparent so quickly how all of those things are so interconnected, especially the inequalities and discrepancies there. And really how you're talking about rebuilding things from the ground up and rethinking these systems that we've been talking about for so long. This is Megan. I feel like our role was so important because there was so much fear and so much we didn't know as the pandemic started. I felt like what we were doing was so important because people were desperate for reliable information and there was so much misinformation floating around out there. It felt like even though it was crazy, it was a great feeling to know it's like all hands on deck. We got to address this. It sort of cuts away the crap that you have to deal with every day in a workplace. And like, for me, that's refreshing. It's like, we don't have time for that. We got to focus on this. People need this information. What's happening? Who's getting PPE? Who's not getting PPE? What's happening in the hospitals? We really focused on where are the greatest cracks and vulnerabilities being exposed by this pandemic? So it allowed us to build on that reporting that we've done a lot of in the past to highlight the fissures in our society that this pandemic really laid bare. And yeah, I, when the protests started, I was pretty upfront, like, I am not comfortable going out. I'm going to say right now I'm a wuss. (laughs) And, you know, to Marisa's credit, to Hannah's credit, our former news director, they were willing to go out and cover those and risk themselves to do that. It took me a long time to get comfortable being ready to go do that. I covered one. I also 
was a wuss because I knew how volatile, obviously, they were very dangerous situations. So we worked entirely remotely. My other host, Nash, and I were the only ones coming into the station. No one was there. It was extremely lonely and weird and isolating to have no one there and be there delivering really tough news often every day by ourselves over the air to whatever thousands of people, but we were by ourselves. But it also gelled our newsroom in a way because we were meeting every day and talking through like, what do we need to be talking about? What do people know? What's the information we've got to deliver? What do we know? What don't we know? What do we need to know? As I, Kevin said, it was a very mixed bag, but it also expanded our capacities. You know, we were able to like, well, we're not going to have great audio. Well, too bad. <laughs> That's what we just have to deal with to get the information out that people need. You know, that was another way that reporters were in the story, right? Like we would go in the field or as we're seeing around the country, the vitriol against reporters when you're out there because people are feeling so angry at the media for, I don't know, saying coronavirus is real or what, for whatever reason, or saying the election was not stolen. Like any of these topics that brought a lot of vitriol put us in the story in some ways, right? And we're experiencing the pandemic too, right? So one thing that I thought a lot about in the pandemic is that, you know, coming up in journalism starting 19 years ago, the idea was always that we were supposed to be outside the story. We were supposed to have this outside voice. And that is part of what like lent us authority as reporters, right? Like there's this kind of myth of the, the omniscient narrator, right? For reporters. In this story, there was no way for us to pretend like we weren't also experiencing the pandemic. Everybody was experiencing the pandemic together. So I think it shifted that framework a little bit. Yeah, because we, I think these last few years, we've had to come to terms with when something is demonstrably false and a lie, we have to call that out or not spread misinformation. We have a huge role in doing that. So it also made me personally not just in my reporting, but think more in depth about my presence on social media. And I would pause a lot for posting. I'm like, should I do this? Is this just going to make people more fearful? Is that helpful to put that out there? Or is it just going to fuel more rage? It's making me angry, but should I share that? Should I wait for a minute before I stoke that? Because we're already in a pretty fraught situation. Also, personally, it infuriated me to to read stories about, to have people saying coronavirus isn't real or putting out these false things about treatments because, you know, I couldn't go see my mom. And I knew at the start of the pandemic, like there's a really good chance this isn't going to be over and she's going to die and I'm not going to be able to go see her. And that's indeed what happened. She didn't die of coronavirus, but I could not go see her. And she was elderly and she died in September. And just before I was finally going to get on a plane to go see her, but that was really hard to sit with. And it made me doubly angry at people who were blowing off whatever, wearing masks or blowing off the science, not only for her, but all the vulnerable people in society, you know, who rely on their fellow humans to protect them, I guess. It showed me that we can't do that. I hate to sound that cynical. I want to believe the best about people, but it really made me rethink that. I get where you're coming from, Megan. I mean, having to report the news for the last year, you don't want to be cynical, but we're reporting about people and their actions. It definitely breeds cynicism to be inundated with it the way we were considering everything that happened last year. Julia, let me ask you about living in the pandemic 
while reporting on the pandemic. Did you have a confrontation at all with the professional ethics of trying to keep yourself out of the story, kind of like what Marisa was alluding to earlier, and wanting to get the true human nature of the story and the essence of what you're talking about in there? Did you allow your audience to see you as a human while you as a human are also going through this pressure of living during a pandemic? Thank you. And Megan, I just want to uh, tell you, I'm so sorry about your mom. Sorry to hear that you went through that. You know, I guess I, the short answer would be no, I didn't feel that tension as much as perhaps others. I felt pretty galvanized throughout the pandemic from its start. I've taught journalism as much as I've done it over the last decade and having a lot of the things I really believe about the importance of journalism and the importance of local journalism kind of coming to play and being able to play a role in that was important. Not that I was in any way not believing it, but actually doing it. And I went into the pandemic, I write the Reporters Daily Newsletter, and I was a science tech reporter insofar as I reported on kind of larger issues, but I certainly wasn't an epidemiology expert. And I have learned so much this year and had access to so many scientists and so many health experts that made themselves available in ways that I thought kind of exceeded what I normally experienced throughout the pandemic. If I needed to talk to someone at LANL, at Santa Fe Institute, at Senator Udall's, anybody I needed to get a hold of got back to me right away because I think there were more people wanting to help get good information out than there were bad actors. And I think for me, keeping the focus on just delivering as much information as possible, I call it stress reporting. I mean, that's mostly what I was doing, but we're such a small community and I've been here so long. I had a lot of interaction with readers and certainly there was a percentage of them that were like, you're a sheep, you should take Zanker or whatever. But for the most part, it was people who were, they were trying to find information and they couldn't I would get it to them. They didn't understand how something worked. I would let them know. And although I don't sort of have a career of public service journalism per se, there was never a better time for it. And being in a position to do it, I thought was really important. Now, you know, the, the mixed bag for me is, you know, I write the newsletter at 5 a.m. The COVID numbers and all the news conferences have typically, most of the year, were from four to six. Um, so, you know, there's like 12 hour days and for most of the pandemic, seven days a week. So there was certainly this element of like, and not leaving your house at the same time. So I can't say that it was sort of like, I was walking around smiling all the time. I was pretty tired and also still am. <laughs> but overall, the journalism portion of the experience, I think overall has been positive insofar as, you know, it's a terrible situation to feel positive about. Julia, this is Kevin. I, I have a question for you because one thing when you're talking about this, it makes me think of you became this voice that people were used to, which I'm sure was a little bit different for you during the governor or Dr. Scrace's press conferences. And he would often, you know, kind of pile some platitudes on you about your well thought out questions, which they were, but it's just those sorts of things are not usually laid bare out there for anybody to watch. Did you get any reaction of people either way saying, hey, I heard you and that was a great question or I can't believe you didn't ask this or, oh, they're just flowering you with praise so you'll give them good press? Um, I mostly had Matt Grubb saying, your dad, Dr. Scrace, is really proud of you today. And then, <laughs> What was nice is that I increasingly had more and more questions from readers who were like, can you ask this for me at the news conference? And 
I did not always do that. Um, sometimes I would just find the information for them, or if I didn't have the, the answer, then I would. And, you know, I mean, like any of you being complimented by public officials is not like anybody's dream situation. But I did feel that I didn't mind the format because, you know, often behind the scenes, you're asking questions and they're just disappearing into the ether. And in many cases, a lot of the information I really wanted to get at was data. And I think pushing on the data ended up meaning there was more and more data increasingly available, possibly to make me stop asking for it. So I think overall, I, it, it balanced out that I was okay with it, albeit embarrassing on occasion, for sure. I was just going to try not to shy away from this, but the, the reason that I asked the question is because for whatever reason, my pandemic reporting experience ended up with me in the story on accident, right? Like I went to the Oñate statue protest, randomly the person who got shot was a close friend of mine, right? So then I ended up in that news cycle. There was just a bunch of news cycles that I just ended up in. I was doing an interview about the Oñate statue protest shooting as a source for a TV station. And this TV reporter asked about like, my connection with my community and my objectivity throughout my life. Like I've grown up in Albuquerque and in response to that question, I was just like, Albuquerque's stories are always my stories. You know, like the stuff I'm reporting on is stuff that is affecting my family, is stuff that's in my personal life. At just if we're thinking like broad topically, not like event as in when you have the statue protest. But generally, when I'm reporting on these big social issues, they are things that me or people I love are grappling with, too. I guess that's why I brought it to my mind is that, you know, in the bigger framework of this, it just was a lot more immersive as people are experiencing loss and hardships from the pandemic. Like, so was I. So was Megan, you know. As we're growing more isolated and I'm working remotely, everyone across our whole city and state and world in some cases so was I and so were all of you, right? Like, there's just a way that we were having the experience that our readers and our sources were having that is just different. It brought us close. Like the first day of protests, you know, we're on the Squawk Channel listening to a bunch of militia, quote unquote, militia cats over at on Yale and University um, and Central. And one of the guys knocks on my door because I knew him. You know, I'm here. I am. We got police cars, helicopters in front of my in, over my house. And I'm, I live right off of Central and all this going on. And suddenly I get a knock on the door because the guy knows me. It's like, no, there was almost no way that we could not separate ourselves from the stories that were happening because we were a part of the community of where all this was occurring. I mean, I, I mentioned it a few days ago. It's like wave upon wave upon wave of circumstances that we're thrown up into that we have to deal with, not only in just, okay, how are we going to get this information and talk to and share this with our audience, but does my cousin have COVID? Do I have to think about that as well? That all of that coming in really changed it. And for me, I'm not a rookie anymore, but I was definitely a rookie last year. So is this like the first experience, the first foray getting into this form of journalism? Taking time now to think about it, it's like something to process. You know, I think I probably have a bit of a different take than most on this because I don't know. I think that this sort of objectivity conversation is difficult and complex because I think we internalize this as journalists a lot more than the audience does. 
I think the audience for a long time has understood that there are people behind these things. And so the only way you sort of prove that objectivity is by showing, not telling, sort of like uh, Julia said, right? You, you do the work, you do it well, you bring the multiple perspectives, you bring the information to it. And, and those who are going to accuse you of fake news or misinformation are, are probably going to do that anyway. But I think we are overly sensitive about when those things are brought up. Of course, we're going to bring all of our own perspectives and background into these things. And I think we are too shy to own up to that at times. I strongly believe it behooves us all as journalists, if we're going to restore trust, to be transparent about those things. I don't think it's a deal breaker necessarily. I think if you look at it as an opportunity to, hey, maybe I did miss something here, let's take another dive at it instead of what I think journalists often like to do, which is just dig in their heels and say, well, but I did this, this, and this, and then you just have closed off an opportunity there. But I also think there's a risk of, yes, we are a part of every story we tell, but you never want to make it in terms of the key issues about yourself. So even if it's a personal anecdote or a personal experience, that can't be the only thing, right? We're here to serve the community. And so from a TV standpoint, we see this stuff all the time that becomes a tool to promote an anchor and their Q rating more than it is about the actual issues. So I think we have to be careful about it, but I don't think we need to be scared of it. Brought to you by your New Mexico government. A collaboration between KUNM, New Mexico PBS, and the Santa Fe Reporter. Funding for our coverage comes from the Kellogg Foundation and KUNM listeners like you. Support for public media provided by the Thornburg Foundation. Hear us each week on KUNM Sundays at 11 a.m. Find past episodes online at KUNM.org or wherever you look for podcasts. It's No More Normal. I'm host Khalil Ekelona. We're talking with journalists about what life was like covering the pandemic. You've heard from Megan Kamrick, Julia Goldberg, Austin Fisher, Sean Griswold, Kevin McDonald, and Nomono executive producer Marisa DeMarco. We're taking a look into the profession and examining how last year changed the nature of journalism and us as people. Stay with us. All right, this is Sean. I'm gonna throw a wrench in the conversation here just because my perspective on objectivity is unique when it comes to what my beat is in area coverage. I cover indigenous issues, I cover tribal politics, I cover tribes, I'm a member of a tribe. I also have connections to other tribes in New Mexico and it's part of my bio. So, I mean, I guess that is my divulging the information because being a member who's active and who also claims a sovereign nation, it's a political point to consider yourself a sovereign citizen and to live with what comes with being sovereign. In this country, if you acknowledge that and you live by that, that is a political point. So that's something I live with on a regular basis. When I started doing the coverage and reporting within the community, I have to also recognize that I'm related to a lot of people whether it's first cousin, second cousin, third cousin, fourth cousin by marriage, clan relations, you know, do I need to divulge that this person that I'm sourcing who's an official for this tribe is my second cousin? That's basically going to take up the entire article. 
So I was glad to be able to have that conversation with my editors who were open to this idea of things are a lot different when it comes to covering these communities. And in fact, there's a reason why these communities are underserved, undercovered, is because people don't know how to navigate the politics of working with the tribal community. There's something that journalists demand when it comes to efficiency and working quickly. You don't really get that when you operate with tribes. For me, it's a matter of, okay, when I came into this role, I had to understand because I've worked in newsrooms where I've covered general assignment, GA topics. So not just specifically tribal and indigenous perspectives. This is the very first for me. When doing that work and building sources and talking to people and figuring out like, you know, okay, you're my first cousin. So let me go talk to somebody else over here to get a different perspective. So I don't have to worry about any family bias going on in the article. You begin to understand that these communities, and especially when it came to COVID information, were operating at a way that was basically providing information for their community, whether it was through Facebook or letters sent to residences. Communities were pretty well informed about what was going on within their tribal community. I'm based in Albuquerque, and so for me to cover that, I had to really just determine, am I covering this for the community or am I doing this for an outsider perspective? You know, I sort of slowed down some of the updates that I would get from the different tribes that I communicated with because that, you know, Zuni Pueblo has reported 33 cases and that information, I decide to share it with my platform or our news organization. Who is really that news for? I mean, everybody in Zuni Pueblo got the update. They know what's going on. Am I just now reporting to people who just kind of want to have an outsider's view and look about what's going on there? I know that there was a lot of concern for tribal communities about what was happening, but when they locked down and shut down and basically went into a mode to protect their communities, information was coming in a delicate way. And I had to really navigate how to report responsibly, especially when it comes from the perspective of how these communities themselves don't necessarily trust journalists. Like I'm climbing uphill when it comes to building relationships with these groups and individuals. And at times I will say that I would use my distinction and my affiliation and my connection in communities with some of these individuals just to gain access and to gain source and to build trust. I don't know if that shows my reporting as any type of bias at all, but it's certainly something that I definitely consider at all times. But I feel like it's different when it comes to covering those communities versus covering the overall larger communities. And to just make one quick point about the protests, I cover protests and I cover police accountability. And you know, I've followed the DOJ reform since before it happened here in Albuquerque. Do I have to divulge that my family has been victims of police violence? I mean, I'm serious, I don't know. I've asked that to editors and news organizations and bosses that I work with and the consensus is that no, I don't need to divulge that information. Even though that covering police reform, I'm coming from having personal experience from a negative aspect of what police have done to communities. But I still feel like I cover it objectively and without bias. Can I ask you a question? Everything you're saying is really interesting. This is Julia. Have you been able to cover indigenous communities critically or would you feel like that's not something that you'd be able to do and continue reporting on them? I mean, I guess that's when I think of conflict, I think of like, I'm not writing for my sources. I'm writing for my audience. That to me is sort of a distinction that I make. The main thing that I kind of remind myself whenever I start to dive critically into topics and just keep hitting my head on the wall or just tribal lawyers will just tell me everything is sovereign and you can't really release any information. When I hit that wall, I have to remind myself that sovereignty doesn't guarantee free speech. So while I'm coming in with the journalistic principle and practices and expect that from the county sheriff, state government, federal government, tribal nations don't have to give me anything. 
They don't have to talk to us. They don't have to say anything to a journalist. There's two tribes out of 575 in this nation that are adopting just now First Amendment principles within their tribal charter. And none of those are in New Mexico. So that's something that as a journalist, when I kind of work within two different worlds, that could be an article right there. But at the same time, I'm asking myself, like, who's driving that charge? Is it just going to be this collection of journalists right here that's knocking on this door of this tribal community saying, let us in, give us all the information that you can and what's going on here? So for me, when it comes to looking critically at tribal nations, I still focus primarily on development, trying to understand where the economic gains are happening with a lot of these tribes, as well as the political strength a lot of them are getting. Tribal affairs are interconnecting and intersecting with state, federal, and even local municipal governments. There's a point where we're actually probably going to be able to finally access information from tribes through public records requests that are directed towards the state, the federal, or the county, or the municipal. But it's difficult for sure to really consider like, am I being critical of the tribe or am I just supporting the growth of indigenous folks and only focusing on that positive aspect? Because that's also a place that we're at in this time. Like, it's kind of cool to be indigenous, but if you're calling out indigenousness in a way that is unacceptable or in a way that maybe seemed unfair or in a way that doesn't look at the historical colonial institutional racism that puts tribes in the place that we're at currently, you really may be doing a disservice to the community as a whole. And then you're not going to get any more stories. I think you should write an essay about that. It's really interesting. back to that question of like who is your audience right so like as you're telling these stories it's like who's listening to them right and what are your obligations you know I actually did interview my first cousin for a piece about substance use recovery he went into a facility before the pandemic came back after it was in full swing and so it was like he was emerging into this world that was really unusual it was an unusual story because he is my first cousin He was able to be really open with me about his experiences in a way that I don't think he would have been with anyone else. I thought the stuff that he was sharing was really important to everyone, not just people who are struggling with substance use during the pandemic, but some of the ideas around mental health and handling your mental health through isolation, right? And that's why I did that piece. We did it on Nimona, which has like a different format. And of course, disclose that this is one of my closest family members. But at the same time, I was thinking about like, who's listening to this? And are they taking away? Are we producing more stereotypes about brown people and addiction? You know what I mean? Like that was on my mind. But I was like, I feel like this conversation is bigger and more important than having to worry about playing into these stereotypes necessarily, right? But it's a hard calculation. I'm considering who's listening and what their biases might already be if I'm now feeding that because that's the audience. Sean, you're talking about as an outsider talking to family. I was very much an insider in all of the conversations I had with my family members because we were talking a lot about, okay, we're seeing this racial justice movement and I wanted to get to my family members, specifically my parents, 
to not only get a historical perspective, both of them being baby boomers in their mid 70s to reflect on that. But where do they see it now? How do we see these things now? So to show that African-Americans are not necessarily monolithic and are thinking about racial justice and this racial movement to add nuance into it, like purposefully spoke to family members about these issues repeatedly. And I will admit, so people could see where I'm coming from a little bit, to see where I'm formed when they listen to the show and they hear me have conversations with folks and they're like, where does he get that idea from? Well, here's a long conversation with my mother and father to show you where those seeds were planted and the life experience that kind of grew on that. And that's, we made it just an obvious, very huge point to have that family in there because then you can become critical in a certain way. It gives you the freedom to be a little bit critical. I was just listening to a clip that I had with my father where he says, black lives matter. Okay, well, black people have to prove it. That's a, in today's world, that's a heavy statement to make. People are like, what do you mean by that? What do you mean? And he goes on to explain it. And I'm like, yeah, I agree. And we go on to have a conversation about this Two African-American men, yes, father and son, but not being critical of the Black Lives Matter movement, but looking at what are we really getting at with this? These type of nuanced conversations that go a little bit deeper than the conversations I think we've all been having generally during my lifetime is definitely what's needed so we can understand. And just conversations I've had with folks, I have this really plain colloquial thing that I've come up with. And it's, uh, if I understand where you're coming from and you understand where I'm coming from, then we both have a better idea of where we're headed to. Particularly in this time of distrust, misinformation, people side-eyeing each other, not necessarily knowing, are you an ally or are you someone I have to cancel? And how all of this comes in and then just seeing how people approach you. Me, being a journalist, this is my first foray. I was getting phone calls and text messages and Instagram, Facebook messages from all over. of People are like, well, here's this idea, here's this story, here's this point, check this out. And getting used to being flooded with all of those, being able to see through those, look at the information that's good. Maybe we bring this story to light, but also how it affects me and how people see there was almost no way that I could detach myself from the stories, from the issues. It was almost impossible. Granted, as Marisa alluded to, No More Normal is a different type of format of show, but we still follow the same principles of trying to get fact-based news and nuanced conversations out there. This is Megan. This is the biggest argument that people often overlook why you have to have diverse newsrooms. When I was at the Third Coast Audio Conference a few years ago, I started a group of producers and people of color from marginalized communities. And we we're having a roundtable and we're like, well, how do we get to news directors? How do we talk more? I was like, well, you don't just tell them like, you just need to hire more people of color. I'm like, of course you do. But I'm like, you've got to get to another part of their brain and say like, you are missing stories. This is just a fact. If you don't have a multiple perspectives, whatever, class, race, in your newsroom, gender, you're missing stories. It's just, you're not going to know those stories because you don't have those people around the table with those ideas. This is awesome. You have to be really careful about what you choose to cover. First of all, getting all of the records for a story is going to take a long time. Understanding and digesting all of that information is going to take even longer. Then you have to ask yourself as a journalist, who is this story serving? Do the findings of this story actually serve a particular interest? Or do they attempt to shine a light on something that a marginalized community has been trying to get out to the broader public and has been ignored by powerful media institutions. Who are you as a journalist and how do you present yourself? 
has a lot to do with how are you going to fit into the public perception of this publication, whether it's a, you know, sort of straight laced so-called objective newspaper, or it's a more of a left or a right leaning outlet. That gets to this question that we've all been sort of dancing around is perceptions of impartiality and perceptions of bias on the part of journalists. I'm really glad to be with this specific panel because I think everyone here is willing to speak openly about, look, we're journalists, but we're also human beings and human beings have opinions about things. And I think it's important for more people in our industry and especially in our state of New Mexico to be honest about that and to be transparent about that. Almost every single editorial decision that we are making every single day is informed by our opinions. And I would go so far as to say that there's two problems here. And I'm drawing heavily on a book called The View from Somewhere by a former NPR reporter named Lewis Raven Wallace. I mean, these perceptions of impartiality, one, are fundamentally a business consideration, which is to say that the higher ups in these news organizations, they don't like getting angry phone calls from angry right-wing groups or maybe the Pentagon or maybe prosecutors. Secondly, it's also a deeply ideological position to take, which is to say that these perceptions of impartiality are designed to create barriers of sort of acceptable opinion by establishing sort of agreed upon set of facts. And I think that actually that set of facts is highly contestable. I think about the pandemic specifically, right? And from early on, if you wanted to frame it that way, there were two extremes, right? There was one extreme of we need to shut down certain sectors of the economy in order to save lives and in the interest of public health. And then the other extreme is that masks are an infringement upon individual liberty and even going so far as to promote some sort of conspiracy theory about a lab leak. I think that's why there is this sort of weird meme on the right in New Mexico that refers to Governor Michelle Wuhan Grisham as Wuhan Wuhan. That's actually an anti-Chinese, anti-Asian racist phrase. It's up to us as journalists to take it upon ourselves to be like, okay, one of these extremes is correct and the other extreme is not. You know, maybe if we were to expand this. So one extreme says... We need basic human rights. We need universal health care. We need to respect minorities. We need to respect trans people, gay people, that these are human beings. And that the other side says, no, they're not human beings. They're not really important. If that were the case, that would be a complete scam, that you would want to side with a group that's fighting for basic humanity rather than obsessing over some sort of compromise in your work where you give 30% of these people their basic humanity and we'll give 70% over to an entire ecosystem of people, and I have no idea what they're actually arguing for, how we approach journalism, it can't be just like this lowest common denominator of what is left or right or what is center. Just noticing something that you said, Austin, at the beginning, it's we say we're a journalist, but we're also a human being. You know, the way I look at it is I'm a human being who's working as a journalist. Like I'm working as a journalist because of interest, because of a confluence of circumstances and the functions of living in this society. This is the employment I have. You know, I'm a human being first. I happen to be doing this job secondly. And a lot of times, particularly in our culture, we tend to identify what do you do for work? What is your profession? Okay, I have this bias of who these people are, what these people believe. I'm going to attribute that to you. 
and then go from there rather than confront the human being who's working in this job. This is Kevin also to get really esoteric on this, but I think conversations like this are so important because again, I just think it's part of the transparency and that it's very clear by hearing all of you talk, not only your passion, but that we're thinking about these things, right? Because I think the assumption of people who want to attack us is that we have an agenda. We go out, we do it, we come back, we execute it, we pat ourselves on the back. And I think it's important as often as we can to explain, you know, Sean's story was so compelling and how many people stop and think about every story that Sean goes into. He's weighing those conversations and those voices in his mind before he sits down to put pen to paper or fingers to keyboard, right? So these kind of conversations are really important with that. And the more we can also just let people know, because I think we're in a bit of a rut on is that anytime we publish whatever platform you're on, there's assumption that this thing is the thing. And it is the one and only thing that will ever be the thing on this topic, right? So a lot of times when people call me to complain about something, I talk to them about how, especially with a show like ours, with the opinion roundtable panels we do that a lot of you have been a part of and things, these are longitudinal conversations. So you need to look and, and watch all of these things before you decide whether or not you're really mad at us about this, fairly or otherwise. Any article we write, any story we publish is a moment in time. And it's a piece of a larger whole. And the more we can, as journalists, help explain that as well, this is not the definitive be-all, end-all report on something. Lastly, go back to the audience. Uh, it's such a huge point for me on two fronts. One is we should always keep in mind who our audience is. But we have a responsibility, especially in a social media age, and it's difficult. I understand that. We have a responsibility to get past this notion of, I have this report, I'm going to send this out to the world, and you just get to take it. You just get to receive it, right? And so how are the productive ways to create that feedback loop? And not just on the back end. I think we've all gotten better about saying, here is our report. What did you think? To really do this properly, it has to start from the beginning with the question of, what should we be talking about? What's going on for you? What are we missing? And then complete that loop at the end with what do we still miss? What do we need to do next? In addition to that, how do we reach the audience that isn't our audience now? And that's the trickiest part, right? They're not subscribing to our social media channels. Connectivity was something that Sean brought up, right? We knew this is a huge challenge in the States. So just throwing it out on YouTube or Instagram doesn't solve the problem for a lot of people. So how do we reach and have those same conversations I just mentioned with people who aren't just falling in our laps every time we hit publish or go on the air? I just wanted to jump in and say, too, that as we're having this conversation about what needs to happen next, I'm thinking about how there are communities that have multi-generational distrust with news media because they've been poorly represented or misrepresented, largely brown and black communities, right? So you hear from people that they just didn't grow up with engagement with the news because of course their parents didn't and on and on and on. So like, why would they suddenly start getting interested in the news, right? The pandemic was interesting because people needed a lot of info from the news. So new eyes and ears were coming to all news media outlets all at once. But I think it has to be more than this kind of like 
kick back. Like if we do everything in a different and better way, people will come to us. I don't think that's going to work like that. You know, I think that it, it has to be outreach driven and beyond social media and not just hoping that your followers will transmit it to someone who doesn't already follow your news outlet. Like I think it has to be more than just waiting for those audiences that have been wronged for decades, for generations to suddenly change their mind and find the value in the news, right? Once again, referring to my first year into the foray and as the protests were happening, Marisa goes out and gets a network of journalists together, everyone who was going to hit the streets. So it's not just people from KUNM, it's not just people from the Daily Lobo, all these journalists. She creates this network in collaborative ways and from what I'm understanding, journalism necessarily hasn't always been super collaborative like that. And I saw the benefits of that. We're looking at all of these institutions that need to be redefined, readdressed, these institutions we have here. Well, the institution of the media and the news has been around for a while. These unwritten rules, is it time for us to kind of evolve how we as journalists, as different media outlets work together? In the next five years, where do you see journalism? 2026, the next five years. Sean. Ooh, I think you're going to see a collaboration for sure. I think you're going to see distinct divides between more corporate collaboration, news hubs, if you will, that are already kind of happening around with newspapers and, and television stations, where you're seeing a lot of content generated at a central hub that's then distributed to networks and local TV stations. I think you're going to start seeing a lot fewer local television stations. I think that's going to be the next crux of the wave of, of local journalism is, you know, we saw what happened to newspapers. It's going to happen to local TV. And I wouldn't be surprised if we lose a TV station here in Albuquerque because of it. But I also think on the other side of that, you're going to see collaboration between nonprofit, public radio, public service journalism groups that are also going to be operating within that sort of service journalism atmosphere and providing news content in a way that is going to be a lot different, distinctly different than what the dailies will be doing. And hopefully within five years, there could be a merge between that service journalism and the dailies and almost like we're just reinventing what the newspaper model was. But I think that's where we'll go. Julia. I was just going to say, in addition to collaboration with other media organizations, you know, one thing the reporter has done is we have a nonprofit and we do training and we accept, you know, four students twice a year and we do kind of on the ground field work and training with them. And I think that collaboration with schools and with other nonprofits, which we also do through the nonprofit, is important in terms of having this wider net that isn't just about journalists, but is also about conveying to a new generation the importance, the value, and the joy of journalism, getting other nonprofits involved and helping showcase the work that they do. So not just collaboration across news organizations. This is Megan. There is going to be a super big downside. I'm sorry, I'm just thinking of Alden Global's latest acquisition. And if people don't know that company, it's really problematic. <laughs> it's a giant hedge fund, buys up newspapers, it gutted the Denver Post maybe a third of the new staff it used to have. And so it's going to do that to all the Tribune papers under a guise of running efficiently. So that is a very bad indicator of what will happen. However, to Julia's point about bringing in other organizations, there are all kinds of organizations that are waking up to, oh my God, journalism's important and it's dying. <laughs> We've all known this for like 20 years. But when you tell people, 
what's going on? They get concerned and they want to know what they can do. So some people with big money are in this space and are trying to figure it out. So lots of things are happening. The New Mexico press women or Albuquerque press women, their monthly meeting on Monday, they're going to be talking with the gentleman who founded the Colorado Sun. It's a network of community papers. He used to work at the Post. So you see some innovation happening in those kinds of spaces. In the absence of the Post, Colorado Public Radio really decided to ramp up. They're like, we are going to be the main news source in the state and started expanding. Things happen. It's not all doom and gloom. There's also sort of these micro kind of tiny collective enterprises starting from former journalists, sometimes like Peter Rice, the downtown Albuquerque News, someone in Cuesta. So I see a lot of unfortunate things happening, Khalil, but I'm also hopeful because there's a lot of innovation and other things happening. So we'll see how that plays out. Khalil, what do you think? Okay, my prediction, policy can change overnight or over a matter of a couple of weeks or a couple months. Culture takes a while. Hopefully we could come to something where there's an understanding, not only from us as journalists, but the consumers of media, that social media in itself is a certain entertainment form. Basically where the audience begins to believe and behave that memes are not empirical evidence. And we all really take it upon ourselves, not just to think critically, but to think deeply and to think more expansively and not rely on the crutch of social media and posts and likes and hearts and cares to say what we actually mean, how we are defining and explaining ourselves. I think if we get a little bit back to, you know, some analog actual work of expression and communication, both as journalists and as consumers of journalism and news, we will be in a better place. But I want to thank you all for this absolutely amazing conversation of this pool of veteran journalists here from the great state of New Mexico. Thank you all very much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Super thanks to our fantastic guests this week for bravely digging into this with us. Megan Camrick with KUNM and New Mexico PBS. Julia Goldberg with the Santa Fe Reporter. Freelance journalist Austin Fitcher. Sean Griswold with New Mexico In-Depth. Kevin McDonald with New Mexico PBS. Nomono executive producer Marisa DeMarco. Next week on Nomono, employers are hiring. They really are looking. Some offer bonuses and prizes just for applying. Republican governors are cutting off those extra federal benefits in order to push people back to work. Some people who want to work say they want to get paid more fairly for what they do. With an economy driven by spending, the need for cash is at hand. Well, it doesn't have to be in your hand, but you'll need access to it. We're in the money. Uh, We're talking about it at least. That's next week on No More Normal. As always, we want to thank our guests for sharing their experience, insights, and expertise with us. Special thanks to Jazz Tone, the producer, Cheo, Dom Life, Business School, Sundog, and Olaud Records for providing music for the show. Khaki, Pope Yes Yes Y'all, and Bigawatt produced some of the show's themes. No More Normal is executive produced by Marisa DeMarco. It is produced and hosted by yours truly. I'm Khalil Colonna. For everyone here at No More Normal, thanks for listening. <laughs>